You're listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. Jubilee Montreal is a Christian church located in downtown Montreal that exists to share the good news as a spiritual family for holistic transformation. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jblmontreal.org. And so we're actually at the end of a, of a series, our first series we relaunched in October, and this is our, was our first series called The Quiet Revolution of Love. And The Quiet Revolution of Love was all about what is Jesus' message really, and how is that different from how we've heard Christianity talked about at times. If often people don't like Christianity because they perceive it as outdated or bigoted or wrong, um, what is, uh, what is the message of Jesus? Is that it? And so what we did is we went through a book in the Bible called Luke, certain passages, and we looked at what is Jesus teaching? What, what did he say? What did he do? What was he like? And just let you compare that to the Christianity that you've experienced. And today is the end of that. So we're going to look at a passage at the very end of Luke. It's almost the last. There's just a couple verses after this. And it's, uh, it's the day, if we talk about a quiet revolution, and we'll end today by talking about what does that mean, a quiet revolution of love, what does that mean? But this passage today is kind of the day that that revolution begins. Everything before this, it, Jesus is walking around, he's teaching, he's talking about what God is like, he's healing people, he's doing miracles, but it's all leading up to something. And uh, so that's what we're going to get into today. I'm going to pray for a couple minutes, and then I'll show you what we're looking at. Father, I confess today my deep need for you. Jesus, your way is so, is so upside down to how we usually think. It's so backwards. You are not interested in our strength. You're not interested in what we can do. You're not interested in our intelligence or our beauty or our, or our abilities, really. As a good father, you look at us and you love those things, but you're looking for people who want to choose to be weak. <coughs> Father, you say in Scripture that, that this message we're talking about, what we're calling a quiet revolution of love, the message of Jesus, that we carry it around inside of us like we're clay jars, easily broken, not much to look at. And so I ask that you would give us that today. You would give us that kind of experience or feeling, or you would compel us to, to see that in our weakness, in our choosing to be weak, then you're strong. Would you help us today, Father, to cut through the ways that we've thought about you, whether we, whether we do know you and we follow you as a Christian or whether we're interested or whether we don't at all, that you cut through it all to show us who you are and what you're like, what it means to follow you and what this is all about. Father, I can't do that. And I ask the Holy Spirit that you would come and that you would teach us through, through the scriptures themselves. You would speak to us and teach. We all learn differently, Father, and so would you speak to us. Would you help me, Father? I just confess my, my inability, my, my own strength to even talk about these things. We're all the same. We're all in the same boat. We're all your kids. We're all made by you. And we, it's silly to try to talk about you. And you're so far beyond but that you can do that. You can help us. Father, I thank you for everyone who's here, for our backgrounds, for our mistakes, for our issues, for the issues we don't even know about or wouldn't want to confess. You love us, and you, and you want to meet with us this morning. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. The, the passage we're going to look at is Luke chapter 24, 36 to 49. If you have a phone or a Bible, you can look at it. I thought Matt was holding a Bible for a minute. I was like, wow, but it's not. Um, so if you have a Bible or if you have a smartphone, you can look on there. The, the words are on the screen. Um, and as we begin, if you've not been with us, or just as a reminder... Um, Maybe it goes without saying, but the, Luke is a, is a book. It's really a biography in the New Testament. So the New Testament is kind of like the last fourth of the Bible there, the long book. And it's all about Jesus. It's all about when Jesus came, what he taught, what he did, and what came after him. And Luke itself is a biography about Jesus by a man named Luke who met Jesus one day, lived with him and followed him. It was called, he called himself a disciple, followed after Jesus, learned from him, he became his friend. And so years later, Luke is writing this account because he's going he's to die soon. And they, they thought, you know, we, 
what they would do in these days is that they would tell the stories to each other. They were much more oral than we are, and so they didn't have as much of a, a need to write things down always. But nearing the end of their lives, all the disciples wrote down what they had seen, what they had heard, and what they had witnessed. And so they talk about it, about Jesus, who became their friend, who became to them God incarnate himself, who died, who rose again, and who had given them, he's changed their life completely. And so Luke is telling this story, and I want you to hear it like that. I want you to try to enter into the story today and think, what would it be like if I was there? Because often we read these stories like they're Bible passages, like they're detached, they're like spirit, only spiritual meaning, or they're, you know what I mean? They're kind of like, it's hard to connect with. And these are real things that happen. The events we can gloss over, but they're, 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 they're real. All that to say, let's read the text together. Luke chapter 24 says this, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So what's happening before this, because it says while they were still talking, is last, if you were here last week, Dr. Matt Downey spoke about worry and anxiety and, and how, uh, how we can live life kind of free by, by staying in a place where we can observe the beautiful things that are often small that God is doing around us, how Jesus teaches you know, if you're worried, why don't you look at the, the, the birds? Why don't you look at the grass? Why don't you look at the flowers? Like, they're not worried. They're, God's always taking care of them. If you're really God's child, what do you have to worry about? That is chapter 13 in this biography. The week before that, we spoke on, I spoke about chapter 18, which, if you remember, is a, a tax collector and a Pharisee go up to the temple to pray. That's the furthest that we got in, in Luke. Matt went back a bit last week. So what's happened between a Pharisee, if you remember that, if not, you can, you can listen to it online. A Pharisee and a tax collector go up to the temple to pray. Jesus tells a story to make a point about hypocrisy, about the kind of person that can connect with God is not a religious person. It's not a person that does everything correctly. It's a person who chooses to be humble before God and, and recognize that they're in need of God. They have nothing on their own. And so after this, there's a lot of things that have happened that we don't have time to talk about. But just as an overview... In the days after Jesus tells the story in the temple, Jesus continues to tell his disciples that in this kind of weird way, and they don't get it. He goes to them and he says, look, I'm telling you that I am going to be arrested, that they're going to drag me off, that they're going to try me, that they're going to, they're going to put me on a cross, that I'm going to be murdered, that I'm going to rise from the dead. It has to happen. It has to happen. And they would look at him like, what are you talking about? Or they would say, you're wrong. You're completely wrong. That's not going to happen to you. Stop being so negative. Um, because they believed that Jesus, what they began to see in this man who really lived and they really followed him, is that he was what they called the Messiah. He was, they were beginning to believe in small ways that, that God was going to restore the hopes of, of them, their families, their people, Israel. He was going to save them and help them, and Jesus was going to do it. So the idea that Jesus would be murdered didn't make any sense to them. To them, that was, that was losing. That was not going to happen. We can't think like that. We have to think positively. We have to think that you're going you're to overthrow the Romans. You're going to restore to the world the way it should be. We talk about transformation here, that God wants to transform the world. So for them, you didn't transform the world, which they wanted to do too. You didn't transform the world by losing. You transformed the, the world by winning, by, by getting rid of the people that were messing up the world. Jesus would keep saying this to them that it was going to happen. And then, to make a long story short, he was arrested by the Romans he was, he was brought before in basically a criminal court. The Romans found him not guilty. The Jewish leaders, who Jesus is constantly upsetting in all the stories we've told, they want him dead. They think he's a threat to them. And so they and the Romans together, so the two, relig- the two most powerful people in the day, the, the religious leaders and the political leaders, they decide, although no one's really sure, that, that we should do away with him and kill him. The Roman leaders actually, at some point, want to let Jesus go because they just think this guy is oh, he's a crazy teacher, but he hasn't done anything wrong. And then the people themselves choose a criminal. They say, no, no, you keep Jesus. If you want to release somebody, release to us that criminal that you arrested. And so Jesus goes through this thing where he says it's his choice. It looks like they're killing him, but he's letting them do it. He's brought onto a cross. He's, he's killed on this Roman cross. He's put inside a tomb. He's dead for three days. After three days, Jesus is, the, the tomb is found empty by some women that, that would follow Jesus, that were actually part of his discipling circle of, of students. 
They find the tomb empty. They're confused by it. They tell everyone else. And then there's a story right before the story we're telling where two, two disciples, not the ones that you know of, if you know any of the disciples, the 12, but others, they're walking down the road to a place, the road to a place called Emmaus. And they're walking and they're discussing this that's happened. Have you heard this news that Jesus, who we all know and talk about, that is, is not there? We know he died. We're grieving him, but he's not in his tomb. And so while they're walking, it says a man appeared to him on the street, and he began to engage them in this conversation about this. What's going on? What are you talking about? They say, how do you not know? Don't you know what's happened in these days to us in, in Jerusalem? And they begin telling what's happened, and Jesus is the man that's walking with them, that they don't realize it's him, tells them and explains to them from the scriptures, from the Bible, because they're all confused about what's happening. He explains to them that all of this was about what just happened. They just don't get it. They still don't understand it's Jesus. And they're saying, okay, well, it's getting late. Why don't you, stranger, come inside our house and have dinner with us? So Jesus agrees, and he sits down. And in a really ironic moment, they sit around the table, and he takes some bread, which we're going to do later. He takes some bread, and he breaks it to have dinner with them. And at the minute that he does this, like their eyes open, and they realize, oh, my God. It's, oh, my God. It's you. <laughs> and, and at that moment, Jesus, Jesus disappeared. That's what the story says. And these, these two disciples are like, what in the world? He was with us the whole time. And they say, they look at each other and say, didn't, when we were walking down the road, didn't our hearts burn within us when he talked to us? I knew there was something about that guy, in other words. And so they immediately get up at night and go to Jerusalem so they can find the other disciples and tell them that we just saw Jesus. Believe it or not, I don't know what to do with it, but we just saw him. And so that's where the story picks up. It says, while they're still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them. Instead of them, peace be with you. You should imagine. These guys, a lot of them are men. There are women as well. They're all sitting in a room. And uh, we know from other passages that they're scared. Well, they, you're going to find out in a second that they're scared. They're scared because Jesus, this is reading it, this is not just reading it as, a, as the Bible, right? But reading it as something that really happened. They're scared because Jesus, who they were following, was just convicted of something and, and killed for it, capital punishment. And they are all his followers, so that would be scary because then they think, who are we next? So what they do is they're all hiding together in, an, in a room, doors locked. We know this from other passages. And they're, now they're talking about what these two disciples say just happened on the road. And then all of a sudden Jesus appears to them, just like that. And he says to them, peace be with you. Uh, we'll keep going in a second, but I just want you to think about it. I don't know what you think about Jesus, but you just think... The first thing that Jesus says to the group after he's, all these events have transpired is peace. This might mean nothing to you, but I, I want you to, to try to wrestle with this. The, as we try to separate what is the religion of Christianity that the world knows of and what is the message of Jesus, and some of those things are similar and some, of the, some things between these things are not similar, the first thing that Jesus says when he appears to them is, I want you to have peace. The first thing he says when he rises from the dead, when he meets them again, is, I want you to have peace now. Religion, the religion of Christianity often sounds like this. God is real. Jesus is real. You should believe in him. There are certain rules that govern the universe, right and wrong, black and white. One of those is you should believe in Jesus, and if you don't, you're in trouble. Also, there's a whole list of moral rules that go along with that, some cultural, some, some about sexuality, some about, about uh, the words you use. I mean, there's, I don't even know how to go through the list. It's super long. And if you, you need to know them, and the Bible's full of them, and if you don't follow them, you're in trouble. And so you need to, there's an in and there's an out, just like this square, and you're either in or you're out, and that's it, simple. And you need to, you need to obey God, follow Jesus, and then you'll be, you'll be all good. You'll die one day and you'll be in heaven with God and all will be well. This, is, this, is a, this is, has a shadow of Jesus' message, but it's not Jesus' message. The first thing Jesus says is not, now it's time for everybody. You, you understand, it's so important to realize what Jesus does not say through this whole thing we're going to look at. He says, I want you to have peace now. He comes to them and says, it's time to have peace. Now, first of all, practically, they're scared. So that's another piece. They're scared because Jesus just appeared to them in a room. That's freaky as well. And he says, I want you to have peace. The king, what Jesus is doing, whatever he's doing, whatever we're calling the quiet revolution of love, it begins with an announcement of peace. We know this from this passage, but others is that even as we go into Christmas, we'll see it. 
that when God comes and he meets people, what he always says is, I want you to have peace. See, religion always includes, I mean, I said all that stuff, but what really you, you're doing, what you're practicing is called anxiety. You're worried. You don't know how to clean up your life. You don't know what's right and wrong. You're, you're insecure around God. What does God think of you? He only thinks of you. He thinks, he thinks things of you based on your, your performance and what you do. That's religion. Jesus says, it's the end of anxiety. The minute I show up, before I know, you know, first of all, all the, he has a lot to correct these people for. While Jesus was on the cross, they all basically disowned him, either in words or just in their actions by walking away. They all disown him. Jesus doesn't even call anyone on it. He just says, I want you to have peace. Jesus' message begins with, with the end of anxiety, the end of worry. It does not mean, and this is what, this is what the religious mind does, well, aren't they right and wrong? This just has nothing to do with it. Okay? You will change. We'll get to that. But he says, peace be with you. So it begins with that. And then it says this. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and at my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bone, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still, and, and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat, here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in the presence. I think the important thing about this part is just to get to know who Jesus is and what he's like. You see, when Jesus meets them, and they're confused and they're scared, he wants them to have peace, and then he's so patient with them. To me, that's what this says is, guys, look at like, you don't believe it's me. I'm not a ghost. Do ghosts have bones? Do they have flesh? Look at my hands. Why are you saying, look at my hands and my feet? It's because when you're crucified, the nails are driven into your, your wrists, your hand, and your feet. And the way crucifixion works, we might talk about it in a minute. Is, uh, it was a very public, you know, they didn't do electric chairs, they didn't do lethal injections like where I'm from, but they, they would take two huge pieces of wood, pieces of tree, and they would take a person and they would nail them, wrists and feet onto it, raise them up really high so everyone could see them. They were making a statement as much as they were killing the person. And the person, Jesus himself, would suffocate. They would bleed and there's trauma, and, but they would suffocate from being hung like this on a cross. And so he says, you saw me up there. Look at my hands and look at my feet. It's me. You can be sure. And then when he sees, he notices that out of joy and amazement, they can't believe that it's him. He says, do you have anything to eat? I mean, imagine this is happening. It's like, it's like you're trying to show a friend something and you're like, no, just give me something. I'll show you how it works. I can do like this magic trick and make it disappear. He says, give me something to eat. Do you have some broiled fish or something? And, uh, I just love to ask for broiled fish as well. It's like a ball. Yes, exactly. Like, do you have a cracker? Do you have anything? I was like, do you have broiled fish? Uh, I like broiled fish. I haven't eaten in a while. Right after I broke that bread, I ran out. I disappeared last night. So he says, do you have some broiled fish? Look at me. I can eat it. He was saying, this is, this is important too, especially uh, to understand what Jesus is going to be doing is when we start erasing all the religious stuff in Christianity, we, and we just, we just look at the scripture and see what it says. What we see is what happens when Jesus rises from the dead is that he's still like a human being. This is, what God, this is a sign of what God is doing. He's restoring the world. He's restoring human beings. Human beings don't become ghosts. You don't become a ghost. You don't float away. You see, what's happening in the future is what's, what's happening in the future for you is what's happening to Jesus right now. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I can still eat. Imagine that. In the kingdom of God, you can eat. In the kingdom of God, you have flesh and bones. God is not looking, this is why it's irrelevant to many people, the religious Christianity. It's nothing like that. In fact, it's saying, look, I was dead on a cross. The worst thing in the world could happen to me. And now look at me. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Now I walk around. I'm here with you. I'm eating dinner with you. In fact, it says later in the Bible that in the day that Jesus returns and he restores his kingdom, we'll all be sitting around at a great banquet eating together. This is a sign what he's doing of what's to come. And so he says, I just want you to see the patience of it, is that Jesus is so patient with us. If you struggle with belief, I do. If you struggle with belief, this is the Jesus that, and you can often think, depending on the way you think about God, that he can't handle your doubt, that he can't handle your questions, that any doubt is risky. It's, it means that you're, 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 you're going to move out of the box, you know? But to Jesus, I just want you to see it's nothing like this. He says, why do, why do you have doubts? Look at me. 
oh, it's not working? Give me some fish. I'm going to eat it. Look at that. He's super patient with us. Even I don't care how long it takes you. He's super patient with you. That He wants to show you that he's real, that he exists, that he rose from the dead. All the unbelievable things. that I mean, they have trouble believing it, right? It's normal that I have trouble believing that. Jesus is super patient. God is, and Jesus is in the image of God. God is super patient. He'll do whatever it takes if you let him. If you stay in the room with him, if you give him a chance, he'll do, he'll, do, he'll, he'll do whatever it takes to help you believe. But you just have to open your mind, you have to open your heart to, to do it. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus spent, if you remember through the stories... The stories that I chose to tell, because obviously I chose certain scriptures to talk about as we did this. But honestly, even as I was choosing scriptures from the Gospel of Luke, I was constantly surprised that in every other story, Jesus goes to a person that's marginalized. And there's always a Pharisee around. There's always a tax collector around. I mean, read the thing. There's more than I read, too. And he always goes, and there's always a religious person that, set, that starts quoting scripture at Jesus. And saying, Jesus, let me ask you a question. You said this, but doesn't it say this in scripture? And they try to constantly catch him. And constantly Jesus says something with only how God could answer that makes them just kind of shut up and close the thing and walk away and not really know what to say and just be angry. Because to them, to the, I want you to see that to the religious people, Jesus is, is, is wrong. To, to the religious people, Jesus is a sinner. Jesus was called a, a, a sinner. He eats with sinners. He, he, he's a drunk. This is what Jesus was known as. And so every time the Pharisees, the, they, they all see him like this. And every time he goes to people, just like I prayed at the beginning, that know they're weak. That's the thing. It's, it's not even the fact that the woman's a prostitute. It's not even the fact that the guy's a tax collector. It's not the fact that all his disciples are like poor, uneducated fishermen. It's the fact that they don't they're not proud. This is the thing. It's actually, if there's one thing I could say at the end of all this, is give up on the religious thing. And I know we all struggle with this to different parts, and maybe you don't think you do much, but give up on that. But if you want to fight against one thing in your life, fight against pride. Because pride is the one thing that will make it impossible to understand what Jesus is saying. Because it, it starts with giving up. And we keep talking about it. It starts by giving up everything in you that knows, that can, and accepting, the, accepting that you're powerless. You have nothing. And that's the place, not where you become belittled and nothing, but it's the place where you encounter the love of God. You encounter that in, in realizing that I can't do this, I realize that I'm actually God's son who he loves, who he's well pleased with. And so, I forgot where we were. Jesus is constantly saying, they're constantly coming with the scriptures saying, what about this, Jesus? What's the greatest law? What's the one thing that we should do? And the reason they say things like this is because they're going to catch Jesus and say, see, Jesus, I told you you didn't care about the Bible. I told you, you no one should listen to you. And he keeps answering them in ways that they can't respond. And then he says this at the end. This is what I told you while I was with you. So now he's saying, I've been telling you all this the whole time. Everything that's written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So this is the whole beginning of the Bible. In fact, it's the majority of the Bible is raised referring to. All those pages, all those words, it's talking about me. It's talking about what I just did. Which is why I keep telling you that you're misunderstanding the scriptures. The scriptures aren't talking about, I mean, imagine that. The point is not the rules. The point, in fact, ultimately he's saying, is it's pointing to what I just did. When I just died on that cross, when, you've, when you didn't find me in the tomb, when I'm standing before you now talking, this is what it's all been talking about, which is understandably confusing to people who studied it all their life and didn't know that. So he says, this is what's all been coming. So in the quiet revolution of love, this idea, we've been looking at what's Jesus say, what's he teach, what's he do, what's he like. But the cross, what's just happened before this, is, is the culmination of everything. His teaching, his healings, they're actually really nothing compared to what he's just done on the cross. Every time he taught, every time he, he spoke, every time he healed somebody or welcomed somebody, these are, of course, beautiful, amazing things, but they're all examples about what God's doing, what God's like, what he will be like. And then the cross, 
when he dies on the cross, when he, when he resurrects from the dead, this is what it's really about because this unleashes all of that. These were just tastes. One man, Jesus, walking around, speaking news about the kingdom of God, telling what's going to happen, healing somebody. It's all leading up, for Jesus at least, how he thinks, to this event on the cross. This is what's the most important. This is what makes all the teaching you know, Jesus can heal one person. That's why it matters. That's why the cross and all these things matter so much. He can come up and heal a person. The cross, the resurrection, is what makes that possible today. Otherwise, they're just stories about an, about an amazing, interesting man, if you can even believe it, that did amazing things. So he says, it's all been pointing to me the whole time. Then he opened their minds. I love this. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. This is, again, how patient God is. He's not saying, we just get it. You just get it. If you're struggling with Christianity or what it means or what I'm like, or you're a Christian and you're struggling, you should get it. And he says, he walks into a room. He says, peace. He's super patient with them and wants them to understand. And then he opens their minds. You just like see a picture where he's like, Phew. so they can understand now. <laughs> Understanding the Bible is not a thing of the, however you want to say it, it's not a thing of, you know, I studied the Bible with a bunch of people in university. And that's what I was doing. We were studying the words of Jesus, but it was, more than half the people weren't even Christians, for sure. In fact, they were like, they were in the class because they wanted to prove it wrong. <laughs> that was the whole point. And all professors that I had, except one probably, were trying to do the same thing. And he says, you can't understand what it means like that. We can understand the story, and it's important to study it. And I actually am all about that. But you can't understand the meaning like that. You can't understand what it's written, what it's really about. Which is why Jesus keeps he keeps making people who are just studying it on their own angry. So he says, I want to open their minds to understand the scriptures. And I think it's easy to talk about these things, but I want to stop now and pray. And I'm going to stop in a couple of minutes and pray again. And that God would, ask, would do that for us. If you can have the faith to believe that God might actually be real and he might actually open your mind, not just for this, but as, we, as you leave here, as you read the Bible on your own, that God would, would do that because we're in a place where you can read the scriptures and you can hear what ends up really being religious ideas, religious things. So, Father, would you help us to understand the scriptures? Would you help us just like you helped these people in this room? Would you open our minds, Father, for those of us who think we can't understand it, for those of us who think that we are less than, we have called ourselves things like stupid or dumb or unable or it's not our gift or it's not our thing, would you open our minds, Father? For those of us who think that we are, who think we're intelligent, who think we get it, Father, would you help us to lay down our pride? And yes, you've, you've given some people a gift to understand things, and these things shouldn't be looked down upon, but I want you, Father, if you would, to open our minds at a different level so that we would read and understand. What are you saying to us? What are you saying? What does it mean? Why did it happen? Would you protect us, Father, from reading the scriptures and ending with something that is not you? Would you help us to see, Father, the difference? Would you help us to know in our minds and our hearts what is good news? What is the gospel? What is the message of Jesus? In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. I do that because, you know, all through this series, Jesus is being met with people that are using the Bible. The, 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 this thing about the message of Jesus is not, not saying that it's not the Bible, but we have to understand that the way we have an enemy, the Bible says, and the way he works is always by being very close to the truth. Because people aren't dumb. So when, when in, this, in the scriptures, when Satan tells a lie, it's always somewhat true. It says this in the New Testament. So what we need to know is, Father, would you give me wisdom? Would you give me understanding? So I know the difference. I know what's just a shadow of what you're about and what is really your message. So he opens their minds to understand. He says this, this is what is written. So that's the most important part. In quotes, what Jesus is saying, this is what is written. So then he explains to them what the whole Bible means. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. To Jesus, this is, this is the way to sum it up. If you want to know what God is about, what the story of the Bible is about. The word Messiah it means the one who saves, the one who's going to come and rescue. It was this deep idea 
that humanity, and we see it today, people, the culture believes this, Western culture, the obsession with a superhero, or the idea, or a politician, or the idea that somebody is going to do something to change things. No doubt, some things need to be changed, we should do that. But the idea that ultimately, something needs to be changed, this is in humanity. And the idea, the word that they use for this is Messiah. The problem is the way we usually think about messiahs is somebody who is strong, who's going to come, who's going to set things right. But Jesus says this. This is what is written. The messiah will suffer. Imagine that. The messiah also has come to be understood as Jesus and that Jesus is, is the image of God on the earth. He's God made flesh. So read it like this. God must suffer. God will suffer. This is what the Bible is about, is that God will suffer. We need to think about that for a moment, because this is what makes it different than everything else. This is, again, what makes it... We're wasting our time with thinking about living correctly. When God's saying, I'm just going to tell you what it's about again. Just peace be with you. I came to suffer. This is good news for everybody who suffers. And it's good news for all of us that God would say... He looks on, I don't know what people think about God all different ways, but this is what God's like. God looks at us and says, I'll suffer for them. I want to suffer for them. I want to I become like a human being, and I want to experience the worst thing that human beings experience, suffering. I want them to kill me. I want them to take me. I want to feel, you know, Jesus wasn't like floating around not feeling anything. He felt himself be killed. And more than that, more than the physical pain, he finds himself and he says, this is what it's all about, is that God suffers. If you want to know what Christianity is about, you might have heard all of these things. That's fine. Christianity is really about God suffers for you. Imagine that. I had a tough week, and that's like the only thing that does it for me. It's like, really? You don't, it's not, notice what he's saying. He's not expecting anything from them. It's just, it, it, it kills every religious thing. That Jesus, this is your time for a speech. What are you going to say? And he says, peace be with you. Don't you know, I came to suffer for you. I came to suffer. He says, and then rise from the dead on the third day. So what's this mean? He says, I came to suffer. I came to experience. I'm God. You didn't think I was around. But I came to experience the worst of humanity. I came to experience the worst of evil, the worst of death, and let it kill me. And then... I chose to rise above it. I chose to literally come back to life, which means something. It means the worst thing in the world that you can imagine, death itself or suffering, has no power over me. It has no power over me anymore. I just, I just experienced the worst, and I rose again from the dead. What's happening, Jesus? What does that mean? Is Jesus saying that the Messiah, the, the one that you've been waiting for, there, we do need someone, first of all, to save us. We need someone to help us. The world needs somebody. But what it looks like is that God comes in the midst of our world. He takes all your sin, all your error, all your shame, all your issues, all your fears, everything that could be, and he takes it for himself. He feels it more than you'll ever feel it. And he says, I'll pay for it for you. I was thinking about this this week, and you know, you go out to eat with somebody. This, happened, this has happened to me a lot, and the person just disappears or something, and then they come back, and I go to, I go to like Jesus, and just pop, they're gone, and and I go over and I go to pay, and they're like, oh, it's already paid. I'm like, oh, you paid? What did you pay? I didn't even see you pay. This is what it's like. It says in the religious system, we've we've all got to pay. And you might think, I don't even care about sin or about wrongdoing, but maybe you know shame. Maybe you know you feel. You don't feel up to life. You feel shamed. And he says, in the religious system, it's all about that. It's all about keeping track of that and managing life so that it can be less and less. You can feel great. In Jesus' system, he throws it all away and he says, whatever you had on, whatever you had to pay, I paid it before you even knew I paid it. So when you go to pay your bill, there is no bill. This is the upside down thing about, is there, how do I, you know, you, you don't be a good Christian. You don't be a good thing. You don't be anything. You just, you walk up and you be surprised and joy and amazement and there's nothing to pay. This is what Jesus is saying is that I, don't you know the whole time what it's written was, I'm going to come and I'm going to pay the bill. I'm going to come and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. So he says, he says this then. This is how he sums it all up. 
The Messiah must come. He will come. He will suffer. He will die. He will rise from the dead. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. We could spend so many times on, so much time on all these things, but we're going to end in a few minutes. So Jesus could say anything, so pay careful attention to the words he uses. God is a suffering God who wants to suffer for people so that they don't have to. Imagine, that, that sounds, even when I say it to myself, like, ah, is that really true? Is God really that good? Is it really not about all the other stuff? But God wants to suffer for you. He wants to suffer for people. He doesn't want them to suffer. He doesn't want anybody to suffer. In fact, he doesn't want anybody to die. He doesn't want any of that. He didn't make the world like that. And he shows nothing but mercy and peace. And we talked about hell, and you can listen to that. But as God is in his nature, we'll talk about the end, he's nothing but mercy. Even his judgment is, is wrapped up in his mercy. And again, if you want to think about that, you can, you can listen to that talk. But he says, God suffered so that you could be forgiven. This is like step one. That's the, that's the bill. It says the bill is canceled. Forgiveness is that. It's not just I'm forgiven for the specific thing I did. I received this thing called forgiveness. Meaning that I'm trans- my life is completely transformed. My future life is transformed right now. I can, it's as if I can do no wrong. Imagine that. That is freedom. That is living freely. That I, have, I can live without anxiety or fear because my, everything is secure. Everything is lined up. It's as, if, it's as if my parents just left me an inheritance. They left me perfect health. They left me everything. And now it doesn't mean that I won't experience suffering. That's for another day. In fact, if you want to be close to a suffering God, you're probably going to suffer. But you're given all these things, so in the midst of that, everything is secure. You have nothing but peace, and you have, you have this thing called forgiveness. Like we talked about that during the, during the, the series, but, so I won't stay on it too long, but you're given forgiveness. And he says, repentance. You're given, you're, 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 th- this is talked about. So this is, in fact, what's happening right now is what he says. He says, this is what's written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and then repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. Literally what he means is, so what's going to happen now, Jesus? Well, God suffered for you. He rose from the dead over death, over sin. And now, I just want you to say this out loud to everybody. Because that happened, you can have forgiveness of sin. It's that simple. Well, how do I do that? All you do is this thing called repentance. Repentance means my mind is set on this thing. It's set on a religious thing. It's set on me. This is usually how it is. It's my mind is set on me. I'm the leader of my life. I know it's right and wrong. I'm following me. I'm following my ideas about life. He says, all I'm asking you to do is just to give that up. Just to give everything up and turn your mind, your will, your emotions, your, your fears, your future. Turn it all to Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't have the answers. The point is not to have the answers. I just give you my life. All I have left to give, my life, I give it to you. I recognize that I need you, that I need a Messiah, that I need a Savior, that I need somebody, and I can't even believe that you would suffer for me, that you would offer me forgiveness. This is repentance, just this, this movement. It's a change of mind. It's just saying, it's, it's, it's so much more simple than we can even make it. It's just saying, you know what, God, I give up. I give up, I turn to you, and I just thank you for what you've done for me. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. This is the next part, is that counter to what's being talked about in the world right now. God loves all people. He actually wants all people, he sees all people as his children and part of his family. And the church, the vision of Jesus is to reconcile all people, all races. They don't want to be separate, all people together. And at the end of time at that banquet, people from every nation, every language, all places sit around together in peace. You know, if this wasn't even made clear, the lion is going to lay down with the lamb. There is no hostility. No race, no language is better than another. And so Jesus is saying, I want this to be told to everybody. I want you to tell this to everybody, just an announcement, that your sins can be forgiven, that you can know God, that God suffered for you. So he says, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is where I want to pray again, and then we'll do the last part. And so you can just you can pray along with me if you want. Father, repentance and for the forgiveness of sins is not a one-time thing. Father, would you help us right now in our own words to repent and to receive your forgiveness. Father, we want to join your kingdom. We want to be about you. 
I don't want to understand it all. I just want to know that you're, you're saying you suffered for us so we wouldn't have to suffer. I want to change my mind and I want to give you my life. Thank you for forgiving me. Here's the last part. He says, you are witnesses of these things. He's just saying to them, you've seen it all. You in the room, you've seen it all. You've seen everything that's happened. I'm going to send you what my father has promised. I love this. Of all the things you could say, Jesus, you wrap all your message up. Because this is his last talk. This is what he does. Then he he literally, it's like a mic drop, and he walks and he floats up into heaven, seriously. And this is how he ends. He says, I told you that's what's going to happen. It's quite simple. That's the whole message. That's what you're going to do. Yes, all kinds of things are going to happen, but that's all that's happening. And then he says, stay here for a minute. Because what my father promised to you, it's going to happen. And you're thinking, what? First of all, there's all kinds of things in this. Jesus says, my father, who promised to you, who are you? You're my brothers and you're my sisters, because we have the same father. My father promised you something, and he's going to do it now. This is, we usually skip over this point, but this is to Jesus the conclusion. This is the conclusion of the quiet revolution of love. This is what it's all headed to. In fact, I think some people struggle with this idea of forgiveness. Not because they don't want to be forgiven, some people do. Not because they don't think they've done anything wrong, some people do. But I think we struggle with it a bit because it doesn't feel like enough. It's like, well, that's fantastic. I mean, I'm forgiven. For some people that are in touch with their need, that's huge. But you're forgiven for a reason. You're forgiven and freed so that you can receive what Jesus says was promised to you. We know from other scriptures that Jesus doesn't, I mean, if you just keep reading, you know the answer. But when he says, stay here because what my father promised you, he's going to give to you, is the Holy Spirit. That's what it's called, what he's called later. I want you to think about that right now, that this is why it doesn't work in the religious thing. All along, even while you were a sinner, even when you were cut off from God, separated from God, the Bible says even while we were his enemies, God's always been promising something to you. Did you know that? I mean, we don't believe, some of us don't believe in God. God's actually promising something to you, even if we don't believe in God, even if we don't want anything to do with it. God has a promise to you. He has a gift for you he wants to give you. The only prerequisite to the gift is that you receive forgiveness. You can't receive the gift without being forgiven because the gift can't be with pride. The gift can't be with, with, with trying, to, trying to pay for yourself or pay your own bill. The gift can only be when you have no more bill left. You can only receive the gift when you have nothing to pay for. The gift later is called the Holy Spirit. In the original languages, it's called the breath of God. Literally, in the beginning of the Bible, God, and here's the image, God takes earth and he forms, this is a story, he forms a man out of it, out of clay, basically. And then he takes it and he breathes in the clay. And it says that at that point, human beings became living. The word for that literally is like what it sounds like in Hebrew is is the spirit. It's God's spirit. God has a spirit like we all do. And it's the inner identity of God. It's his person. It's his life. It's all that he is. We call it the Holy Spirit. And we we have all kinds of things about that. But in its most simplest Explanation: It's God has an identity and a spirit inside of him that he wants to put within us. Why is that good news? Why is it a promise? God looks at humanity and he doesn't, this is what it tells you, it doesn't just see that people are, are screw-ups or issues. or He sees that they're cut off from their identity. This is why we're all acting like this. This is why we're all struggling. This is why we're all having issues. Not just because we're bad, but because we're cut off from who we were made to be. We're living, we're living as half a human being, in fact. And so what he says is, wait here, because I promised I'm going to do something for you. Even in the scriptures, the reason that, the, that God made people and breathed the spirit into them, and now we don't have it, is because of this thing called sin or independence. When we chose to be independent from God, when we chose to live life separate from God, the spirit left. And we live life as, as we have. The problems in the world are, are at its core, the fact that human beings live as half human beings, as without the ability to be who they were made to be. And so Jesus says, here's the best thing you can imagine if you knew what it was. There's a promise. God says, I want to make you my children again. And to make you my children, I want to put, he uses the word here, power. I want to put power. What's power? I want to put power for living. Now, yes, when you get the power, you begin to be able to do the things that Jesus did. As you live life, as you become his disciple, you look like him, you sound like him, you do the things he does. But at its core, what it means is that you become his child again. 
You're given power to live it out. This is, again, why has nothing to do with religion. Religion, no matter what you call it, says, this is my, my beliefs and my way of life, which lead me to be a good person, a better person, and lead me to be acceptable to myself and to God and to others. Jesus' message says, be done with that. Recognize your lack. Come to me. Receive forgiveness. And let me give you what I've been, trying to pro- what I've been promising you and wanting to give you all along. I want to put my spirit back within you so that you can have real power inside to live life. Real power to live. And imagine that. If God wanted you to just follow rules, well, he would just keep yelling, telling you to follow rules. Instead, what he wants to do is he wants to put the engine, the Holy Spirit, he wants to put it back inside you so that you just follow rules. If there are rules, I think you end up probably not even thinking about that anymore. But he puts it into you so that you will begin to live like God himself, like his child, where you just live out. We talked about this before, where you just live out your identity. You live out who you are. God wants to give that to you. He wants to breathe back into you life. That's totally different than religion. That's the message of Jesus, which is often not talked about, but that God suffered for you so that he could offer you forgiveness if you'll give him your life. And because of that, he, he says, now you can announce it to everybody. Your sins can be forgiven. I don't care who you are, or where you come from, or what you did, or what you just did, or what you'll do tomorrow. You'll be forgiven. And now, wait, he says to them, wait and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want to put my mark, my identity on you. We know this because later it says in Romans that that... The spirit inside of you bears witness with the spirit that God put inside you that you are his children. Your own identity that you've always had, together with the spirit that God puts in you, all of a sudden makes you realize, like maybe not mentally, but makes you realize, it says, that you're actually God's kid, and that he loves you, and he's pleased with you. And that is the beginning of a life change. That's the beginning of transformation. So this is just an an invitation as we close here. I know we're all at different places, but as we end here, we're going to move on to something next week. It's an invitation to join again. What is Jesus' quiet revolution of love? We use a phrase, and I realize maybe it's time we talk about what it means. A revolution refers to when someone or a group of people work to overthrow a current system of government. Okay, So you've seen it in the world often in the last few years, but you know, what we called the Arab Spring or in the Middle East where groups were tired of being controlled and so they rose up together and overthrew the government and they put themselves in the place. This is, in fact, closer to what Jesus is doing and how he talks than a religion, than starting, a th- than starting a, an institution of beliefs and practices. Jesus is saying, I'm going to overthrow the systems of the world. In fact, I just did it. All, you don't have to know, and he'll say, you don't have to know about all the details, but every evil, evil himself, the enemy death, sin, all of it, I'm overthrowing it all. And I'm going to come, and I am now the government. I am the king. I am, it might not look like it, we're in between, but I, I am the creator of the world. I made it, I love you. And so you can hope, you can know that everything's secure, that I'm in control, and that there will be a day when death, the last enemy, will fully be destroyed, even in you, and you will rise from the dead, and you will be seated around a table in a banquet inside a city that's full of love. This is a revolution I'm inviting you to. It's, very, it's, it's, it's super relevant to humanity. It's, not, it's super good news to people who need it. The revolution, though, is quiet. What this means is that the way revolutions usually work is it's loud and messy and there's a lot of blood. And with Jesus, he's the only one bleeding. You see that at the beginning? He lets... That's why they all didn't get it. He lets the oppressors, the ones in control, kill him. So to them, it's like you lost the revolution. You lost everything we stood for. He says, no, because the way God does it is not like the way human beings do it. It's not through sword. It's not through violence. It's not through force. It's not Religion is another form of force and violence, by the way. It's not through forcing someone. It's through showing love. It's by giving up. And what happens is we can see it in Jesus' example that he actually overthrows it. And now it's quiet because the only thing you're doing is preaching forgiveness. It's quiet. It doesn't happen, honestly. It's not even mostly in places like this or in places where there's hundreds of people. It's in everyday conversations. It's walking down the street. It's, it's people in their worst moment crying and realizing, I give up, God. You can have my heart. I give up. This is the revolution. It's quiet. It happens in a heart. Hearts change and then the world begins to change. And it's about love. In 1 John, this is the only time that we see something like this. 
what is God like? What is he like? What is he? You know, we all try to define God and explain him with all kinds of theological terms, but this is the Bible's way of talking about it. God is love. Think about that sentence. God is made of love. It's like if love is a matter, that's what God is made out of. We use the word love. We have ideas of love. We love. God himself is love. God himself is true love. Love that we probably have never experienced. We've tasted bits of it. We've seen bits of it. He is love. If you want to know what God is like, he's pure love. Love that you've never known. Love that you've never experienced. Love that if you have experienced anything, is anything good is a little taste of what God is like. God is love. And then we know this. This is about the Spirit again. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So what's it about? This is the quiet revolution of love. Is that in the end, what God's doing is he's saying anybody that wants to be a part of this Jesus thing, you can call it Christianity, whatever you want, anyone that wants to be a part of that, what I'm doing is I'm, I died, I taught you, I died, I rose, I came with you, I told you, you'd be forgiven, you'd be wiped clean so that the promise of the Holy Spirit can be given to you again. What's happening? We know from, from this section later on in the scriptures when they're realizing what's happening is when God gave me his spirit, he's not just giving me power, but what power means is he's pouring his love into my heart. And what is his love? It's him. He's pouring himself into me. Imagine that. He's pouring, God is pouring himself into me. So if I mean, I had a bad week. If you're having a bad week, just imagine, just, just, Go crazy and believe that for a second. God is inside of me. That's why it was about weakness. It's ridiculous. <laughs> because it's just saying, you know what? You can be forgiven. Because God wants to be inside of you again. He wants to put his identity, his spirit in you. When God's in you, what does it feel like? It feels like you're filled with his love. That's what it feels like. That's why you're transformed. Because love doesn't mix with religion. When love encountered Pharisees, Pharisees were frustrated, so frustrated. When love encountered somebody on the margins who knew they were broken, they experienced good news. God wants to say, God's saying, I want to pour my love in you again for you. I don't want you to suffer. I want you to be filled with my love. I want all humanity to be filled with my love. And then you will live a new life. You will change. Your issues will change. Thank you for listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jvlmontreal.org.